0: Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government, As we record, it's Wednesday morning, November 7th, the day after the 2018 midterm elections. As of this recording, Democrats have secured a majority in the House, while Republicans have maintained their majority in the Senate. I'm Adam Taylor.
1: And I'm Danielle Parnas. On today's episode, we'll dive into some of the big policy implications from yesterday's voting. To do that, we're going to bring in reporters and editors from across Bloomberg government, Bloomberg Law, Bloomberg Tax, and Bloomberg Environment. We're also joined by our fellow legislative analyst, Sarah Babbage.
2: This episode is also going out on some other Bloomberg podcast streams, like Parts Per Billion and Talking Tax. If you're a regular listener to one of those podcasts and like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to Suspending the Rules, a weekly look ahead at what's going on in Congress. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Nancy Ognanovich is the senior congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government, and she joins us now. Hi, Nancy. Good morning. So despite some close calls, it looks, broadly speaking, this morning like last night went mostly as expected.
3: Pretty much so. The uh, Democrats were able to take back the House, and in a sizable way, they picked up like 30 30 seats or so. But Senate Republicans hung on to their majority in, and also expanded their majority in the Senate.
1: Looking ahead then to the 116th Congress, we're probably going to see Nancy Pelosi reclaim the role of Speaker. So what kind of legislation can we expect in the early days of a Democratic House?
3: Well, last night, when it was clear that Democrats had the majority, she came forward and she said that one of their first things that they'll push would be an infrastructure plan, and that's something that she and Chuck Schumer have talked about in the past year, in anticipation that Donald Trump's own infrastructure proposal was going to gain traction. It didn't, but she's game to try to do that again. Obviously, the tax cuts that Republicans wanted will be on the back burner, to say the (laughs) least, but Democrats... Democrats instead may take a revisiting of the 2017 tax law and pursue middle class tax cuts. Also, she said that HR1, that's a very significant designation in the House of Representatives, for Democrats will be what we call a good government bill involving campaign finance and a restoration of the Voting Rights Act. It probably can't get any further than the House of Representatives, but that's something that she said will be pushed. And I um, expect that there will be a lot going on on the health care front, because that's what Democrats were running on to shore up and stabilize the Affordable Care Act and make some tweaks there, ensure that there's coverage for pre-existing conditions. That's very important to their constituents. And so we'll see a lot on that. Also, further down the road a bit, there will be must-dos that they have to deal with with Republicans. They can't get around it. They have to fund the government.
0: Right. Knowing that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is still there with his Republican majority, a lot of these big Democratic ideas are... are not going anywhere in the Senate. You mentioned infrastructure. Are there other areas where they can come together?
3: On infrastructure, I think there is interest in the Senate and at the White House, but the big issue is gonna be how to pay for it. Where's the revenue? That was a stumbling block before. So if they could get a deal on that, that could be a bipartisan Mm -hmm. win. On budget, Mitch McConnell has acknowledged that in the spring, or in the summer, depending on the exact you know, details of the timing, mm-hmm. they have to deal with raising the uh, federal government's borrowing authority to avoid a default. They'll have to work together there.
0: Right now, the debt limit has been suspended until March, correct?
3: That's right, around the 15th of March. And then they have to get a budget deal so that they can push appropriations bills next year and fund the government and avoid any kind of a crisis. So they have to work together on that.
0: Right, the deal to raise the spending caps, uh, exp- fires at the end of, I guess, fiscal 2019. So next year, if they just want to maintain the same level of funding for the the entire government, they're going to have to raise the caps again, right?
3: They're going to have to raise the caps again for two years, and that's $100 billion that would be added to a deficit that is expected to get to the $1 trillion level this coming this year, calendar year, because of the impact of the 2017 tax law and other items. So
1: these are big issues they have to work out, but we also now have a presidential election to look toward in two years. So what's the window for them to actually get some things done before everyone goes back into campaign
3: mode? The window is short. The window basically is until the August recess. That's, you know, just, you know, not even a full year. And then you get into that really intense primary season. And some people actually say that the 2020 campaign begins today. So it's a very short time that they have.
0: So the biggest change in with a a Democratic House might be on the oversight front. Democrats have said they they plan to launch investigations,
3: what should we expect? We're going to see that right from the get go. You'll see some investigations that will be very high profile. When the Mueller report comes, they'll obviously want to take a look at that. But what's really important is that there will be probably investigations by all kinds of different committees that have jurisdiction over different cabinet agencies and programs. And so there'll be many different committees looking into EPA, Interior, HUD, education. And then the Ways and Means Committee is going to ask for the president's tax returns. So you'll see that early on.
1: Thank you, Nancy. We will be right back with our next segment. Healthcare care was a big issue during the campaign, and now House Democrats have an opportunity to pursue their policy priorities. BGov Health Policy reporter Shira Stein
2: joins us in this segment to talk about these issues and where Democrats might find some common ground with the president.
1: Hi, Shira. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Danielle. So Democrats are in a very different position today on health care than they were after the last few elections. The Affordable Care Act was not so popular when it was first enacted and contributed to their losses in the past. This year, issues like pre-existing condition protections became key differentiators for Democrats. Looking at the results from yesterday, was healthcare the big driver in this election that the polls and analysts said it would be?
4: Yes and no. When it comes to the House, it it definitely was. When it came to those suburban districts that Democrats were targeting, when it came to the Senate, a lot of the endangered Senate Democrats were campaigning using pre-existing, protecting pre-existing conditions. But all of them so far, except for Joe Manchin, were voted out of office. Exit polling showed that four out of 10 people said health care was the most important issue to them. But it seemed to be pretty more important in some of the polling leading up to the election.
2: What do Democrats want to do, if anything, legislatively regarding the Affordable Care Act?
4: Well, Nancy Pelosi, who's most likely expected to become the House Speaker, has said it's a top priority. The three Democratic leaders from the three main health care committees who are expected to become chairman have already introduced a bill to stabilize the Affordable Care Act through reinsurance, which is a way that health care companies get insurance to protect them against high-cost enrollees in the ACA market. Health policy consultants, though, are skeptical they can actually do this because an effort to shore up the ACA in the Senate, which was led by Senators Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, fell apart. They're also skeptical because it's difficult for voters to understand what stabilizing the ACA means, so it's not something that's good messaging for Democrats ahead of the 2020 election. And now that Republicans aren't in control of both chambers of Congress and the presidency, they won't feel as much of a pressure to do anything to fix the ACA because they're not going to get all the blame for anything going wrong with it.
1: And also those stabilization efforts were to address premiums, which in the early years of the ACA individual market were really high, and now they seem to
4: have abated a little bit. So does that also contribute to the dynamic? Partially, although some, peop- some analysts say that the premiums lowering now are, they were lowered from an artificially high premium due to actions taken by the Trump administration.
1: Democrats have started to rally around the idea of Medicare for all, but it can actually mean very different things. Senator Bernie Sanders has a bill that would create a single-payer health care system, replacing most forms of insurance. Other Democrats say Medicare for all and mean a public buy-in option that would supplement the current market. Talk to us a little bit about where Democrats and the public
4: stand on this issue. Well, according to a Reuters poll, 70% of Americans said they support Medicare for All, but it's also a messaging thing. As you just pointed out, there are different kinds of terms to use for Medicare for All. So polling from the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 62% of respondents were positive towards Medicare for All, but if you change it to a single-payer health health insurance system, it's only 48% positive. The main bill that that Democrats are looking at when it comes to this is the single-payer Medicare for All bill sponsored by Senator Bernie Sanders, but there are also three public option bills from Democratic senators that would give people the option to buy into Medicare. So
2: the administration has already come out swinging against a universal health care type system, and they've been saying that it would effectively become Medicare for none. Is that
4: something we're going to see much action on in the near future? It's less likely. So last night, a lot of the candidates who are running on Medicare for All platform, the ones who are in the more blue districts, they won their their candidacy. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Pressley. But a lot of the Democratic candidates who are running on Medicare for All in the toss-up races actually lost their races last night. If enough had gotten elected, they could have potentially pushed pushed House Democrats to the left, but I don't see that happening. We're more likely to actually see action as it gets closer to 2020. The liberal base of the Democratic Party is pushing for Medicare for All, and they're pushing the party farther left. The 2020 Democratic candidate will most likely have to support Medicare for All, especially now that the Democratic National Committee has changed the way their balloting process works to not allow superdelegates who tend to be the more moderating forces in the party to vote on the first ballot.
1: So in the near term, drug pricing is a key priority for Democrats and also President Trump, who just released a plan to bring prices down. Is this an area where we might actually see something happen?
4: Yes, it definitely is. It's one of the few policy areas where Democrats and Trump can actually find common ground. It's one of the Democratic priorities. They use it as their closing arguments for the midterms. And as you said, Trump has been introducing lots of drug pricing actions, and he continues to plan to do so. Trump wants wins. We know that about him. He loves signing bills. He loves saying that he has won something. And this could be one for them. Democrats could give him that win. And as we saw this morning, he was tweeting congratulating Nancy Pelosi, saying that he, that she should become speaker. But Democrats also have to balance giving Trump a win and showing voters that they can get things done with pushing against him in 2020. Well, thank you, Shira. We will be right back with the next segment.
0: If healthcare was the motivating issue for Democratic candidates, on the Republican side, it was immigration and border security. With Democrats coming into the House majority, what's in store for President Trump's proposed expansion of the border wall? Bloomberg government homeland security reporter Michaela Ross joins us now to talk about this and more.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. With the Democratic House, is Trump's border wall proposal dead?
5: Not quite yet. In fact, maybe not even through the whole session. Uh, what we really have to look out for is this lame duck session. Several Democratic and a couple of Republican aides said that it's a, it's a big toss-up. Current House Speaker Paul Ryan and current uh, Senate leader Mitch McConnell have both said there's going to be a big fight over the border wall and spending in this lame duck period. The funding for DHS, the Department of Homeland Security that would control this, is ending on December 7th. So it is a big toss-up. There is one piece of legislation from Kevin McCarthy, the current majority leader in the House, that would give $23.4 billion to the secure, to the border wall over the next several years. If that doesn't get passed in the next two months, that's something to, to watch. I doubt that that's going to be following into to the next uh, session of Congress.
0: Back in June, the House considered and rejected a couple of Republican pro- proposals to pair increased border security funding with changes to legal immigration, including a pathway to citizenship or or at least pathway to legal status for immigrants brought into the U.S. illegally as children, they received protection under the Obama administration's DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. In February, four different versions of immigration change legislation failed to garner 60 votes in the Senate. After last night, could there be a path forward on something like this that pairs DACA or other immigration changes with border security?
5: Well, lobbyists are telling me that, yes, there might be a path forward, and it might include, yes, some border wall funding, especially now that the Freedom Caucus in the House is going to have less power now that the House is democratically going to be controlled. But with that caveat it might not be this type of wall that President Trump wants it might just be construction of the existing wall segments there is about 650 miles of wall that's already there uh, to make those bigger to make those stronger
0: upgrading the fencing sections
5: exactly or it might be using more technology drones for surveillance or sensors for surveillance that is yet to be determined but yes there might be a pairing of these two issues the DACA issue and protections and the border wall
1: a theme we're hearing now that Democrats have taken over the House is increased oversight of the Trump administration, at least compared with what we saw during the last two years. Should we expect to see Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen uh, called up to the Hill more frequently?
5: I would expect that, yes. Um, I spoke with Benny Thompson, Representative Benny Thompson, who is slated to be the next chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee uh, once the House would take over power in January, and he definitely pointed that out. He wants to hear more from Secretary Nielsen. He wants to hear more about what's going on. He wants greater communication. But not just on that level. He wants it on a lot of different levels. So election security and FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, but also border security. So yes, we're going to be seeing more oversight from his com- coming from his committee in a lot of different areas. Uh, so for example, we've seen a lot of action uh, for coming from President Trump's office as far as what he wants to do with immigration in the, in the run-up to the midterms. And all of that has seen pushback from the House Democrats. I'm not expecting that to stop at all. So for example, Trump's push to... To get rid of birthright citizenship, that has seen opposition from Democrats. His push to put more thousands of, of troops on the border to stop these two migrant caravans that we're seeing coming from Central America towards the Southwest border of the U.S. That has is. The Democrats are calling for oversight there. They want to know how much these things are going to cost. They want to know exactly how these tubes are going to be used. They want to know how much time they're going to be down there. So there's going to be a lot more obstacles for the Trump administration to get its agenda through.
0: We've heard the phrase tent cities thrown around. I assume that's something that Benny Thompson is going to want to be looking at as well.
5: Absolutely. There's a couple different um, efforts right now uh, uh, from the Trump administration that would increase the number of detained undocumented immigrants at the border. So last week, um, President Trump made a pretty vague proposal. We're still waiting on details. He said that an executive order would be signed this week. Still no word on that, but that there would be more detention of asylum seekers instead of allowing them while they wait for their court date after crossing the border. That they would instead of allowing them to you know have some kind of monitoring system like an ankle bracelet and be allowed to be in the U.S., they would be detained. So that would be thousands of tent cities, which the Trump administration did acknowledge. Other place that we might see more detention centers being built is with the issue of undocumented children. So there has been an increase in the number of family units uh, that are crossing the southwest border, in fact, quite a large increase this last fiscal year.
0: And that's what's in a lot of the uh, so-called caravans that are coming up. A lot of them are families as well.
5: Yes. There is uh, this idea that family, if you bring a child with you, whether it's your child or not, that is going to you're going to be able to just automatically stay in the U.S. And that is driving some of these undocumented immigrants to come up in these caravans. And so um, fiscal year 2018 saw about 107,000 individuals apprehended at the border that were part of families versus the prior year, which was about uh, 76,000.
1: And on the issue of children being detained, there is currently legislation in the Senate to undo the Flores settlement that limited child detentions to 20 days. And two of the most outspoken opponents to that bill lost their reelection bids last night. Do you see that issue coming up again? Yes. So in the Senate,
5: uh, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee there is Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. And he has said time and time again that, you know, immigration is, we don't have a secure border, he says, and that immigration is a mess. But what he can do in his committee is reform this one issue. So it's definitely going to be a top priority of his. He introduced this legislation. And the two of the top opponents to that uh, are the two senior leaders in the same committee, Claire McCaskill and Heidi Heipkamp. Both of them lost the races last night. Both of them were very passionately against this legislation. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the pushback is going to come from the Democrats within that committee. The committee tries to be very bipartisan. So Johnson has definitely slowed the progression of that legislation. He wants more data from the Department of Homeland Security. He feels like he's been getting different numbers about exactly the size of the problem and how to address it. So it might still be slow moving, but it's going to be really interesting to see who takes up Claire McCaskill's spot as the ranking member on that committee. And then also Heidi Heitkamp, who was um, two below her.
0: Well, I'm sure you'll be watching it closely as we go forward. Thanks, Michaela. Thanks so much. One story of the first two years of the Trump administration has been environmental deregulation from leaving the Paris Climate Accord to scrapping the Clean Power Plan to slow walking, even rolling back emissions regulations. With Democrats taking the House majority last night, how's that going to change? Here to discuss is Bloomberg Environment Editor Rob Trichinelli. Rob, welcome. Great to be here.
2: So Rob, knowing that Republicans remain in control of the Senate and the White House, Democrats have highlighted that when they take over the House, they can play an oversight role. So should we be gearing up to basically just be watching two years of hearings, or how's that gonna play out?
6: I mean, the answer to your first question is yes. I think we're gonna basically see a two year long march of agency heads Into these House committees and I think a bunch of different House committees are gonna want to get in on the action you think of House Energy and Commerce um, has oversight of the EPA but House oversight obviously a big oversight role there too and House science probably will get on it uh, get in on it too you think of house science in the last eight years of Republican governance is kind of more focused on deregulation I think with the Democrats in control of the House you'll actually see a a more a more committed look at actual principles of science and that would apply to how. How EPA, Interior, some of these other agencies are, are doing their rulemaking, and and of course they can bring in agency heads and and division
0: heads and all kinds of
6: um, administrative officials in
0: to to chat. One of those agency heads, uh, Ryan Zinke, assuming he he's still in his position, expect him to be up. I'm sure.
6: Uh, absolutely, yeah.
0: So House Democrats are they going to be in a position to slow down any of the administration's deregulatory actions? Because you know the Trump administration is going to keep pushing on that, or will it really just be hearings?
6: Well, I think uh, a lot of these administrative actions are being challenged by lawsuits, and in the case of the EPA, if they're trying to rush through deregulatory rollbacks of already existing rules, well, those rules had a pretty robust history to get there, and and the the previous administration really showed their work on these things. And so if the, the, the Trump administration's EPA is trying to roll back things in a hurry, lawsuits come. And some of these lawsuits have been preliminary pretty successful from environmental groups and other groups withstanding. So if you have House committees bringing in agency heads and developing a record on what they were thinking on certain things, that could bolster
0: these lawsuits, too. Climate issues weren't really at the forefront of the campaign for either party, though uh, it certainly cropped up in, in some races where we had major weather events, hurricanes, wildfires, flooding. At the same time, federal climate legislation has certainly taken a back seat during the, the Republican Congress, while kind of leaving a void for states and cities to fill when it comes to cutting carbon emissions we saw several state level ballot initiatives mostly come up short yesterday can you tell us about some of those
6: uh yeah I mean you think about the the federal government not having much of a role in taking on the effects of climate change uh, with with Republicans um, running the show a lot of that would fall to state and local and you think of well there's state and local legislatures that do this and elected officials but also a bunch of states threw this to the voters this week and uh, for the most part environmental came up empty. I mean, there was a measure in Alaska, for example, that would have uh, heightened habitat protection for salmon. Voters rejected that. You saw um gas taxes get rejected in a couple of states. Uh, California upheld theirs, but a couple of states where that revenue would have gone toward any number of state initiatives. You saw a hard rock mining bill in uh, Montana fail. You saw a renewable energy bid fail. But, and then in Washington state, it looks like uh, the, the returns are still coming in, but it looks like the um, ballot initiative on a carbon tax there, or a fee, um, is not gonna be successful either.
2: So with that Washington carbon tax fee, if that isn't ultimately successful, we also saw Carlos Curbelo, who's a House Republican at the moment, maybe not for much longer. He introduced a carbon tax type proposal earlier this year. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, We saw in 2009, the House advanced cap and trade legislation that died in the Senate. Is time running out for some sort of carbon pricing pricing scheme? Or is that something that you think Democrats are still going to have an appetite to consider in the next Congress,
6: uh, the appetite among Democrats is certainly increasing. That kind of thing might not get anywhere past the House. You know, if the House passes a bill, it's probably dead before it would get to the Senate, or and the Trump administration probably wouldn't sign something like that. But the appetite is growing among Democrats. And recently, we saw the the international panel's report on climate change that made, made things seem a lot worse than maybe people had thought before. That is getting traction among Democratic lawmakers in a way that. It's sort of breaking through in a way that other reports and, and evidence hasn't. So I do think there's an appetite for carbon tax as one way to address the effects of, of climate change. I think that you mentioned Carlos Cabello, who is uh, will no longer be in Congress. He just lost uh, his, his re-election bid. He was kind of unique in that he's a Republican, but he represents the South Florida district. And he's, you know, the district might be underwater in a couple of decades without any Policy changes. And so he's like one of those examples of climate doesn't really become real to someone until they feel the effects of it until the, or, or until their district does. You think of wildfires in California or um, flooding in Florida, maybe hurricanes along the Atlantic coast. And so, you know, Curbello was in this, uh, uh, the Republican leader of this bipartisan climate solutions caucus, but now he's not going to be there. And it, it doesn't seem like Democrats are really going to be interested in seeing what Republicans want to do on climate. They'll just be pushing forward with what they think. In that House, at least, uh, they should be
0: doing. Well, we'll be following it at Bloomberg government and Bloomberg environment. For sure. Rob, thanks again for coming on. Great to be here. The
2: 2017 tax overhaul was probably the most major piece of legislation enacted by the 115th Congress. Democrats were almost entirely shut out of that legislation, but it sounds like we'll be seeing their tax priorities when they take over control of the House next year. Here to tell us what to expect is Bloomberg tax
1: reporter Stu Basu. Welcome, Stu.
7: Thanks. Glad to be here.
1: So Democrats have been pretty shut out of the tax world for the last two years, as Sarah mentioned. Are they going to hit the ground running with specific legislative priorities, or will it take them time to put their agenda together?
7: I was talking with uh, Richie Neal, who is expected to become the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee next year, and he said he would want to have a lot of hearings on the 2017 tax law. As you said, they were shut out of the debate, so he's going to get witnesses. They're going to try and find out what works in the new law and what's not working, and then kind of set the ground for any possible changes to the law further down the road.
2: And so do we know of anything they want to change to the 2017 tax law yet? Like any changes to that um, much lower corporate income tax rate now? Or is it still up in the air?
7: You know, the discussions are just beginning. Uh, Some people have mentioned a slightly increased corporate tax rate than the 21% now to fund some other initiatives, but These discussions are taking place right now, but you know whatever the Democrats do, it is likely to be focused on the middle class and lower income families and how to help them using the tax code.
2: So you mentioned that uh, Richard Neal is probably going to be taking over as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And you wrote in a recent story that he's on good terms with Republicans in the committee, like um, the current chairman, Kevin Brady, but that he's also gonna be pulled to the left by members of his party. So can you tell us a little bit more about, like, what his legislative priorities are and some of the pressures he's going to be facing?
7: So Neil has been on ways and means for 25 years. He knows the people there. He knows the rules. He's well-liked. He is calm and thoughtful and does not rush to judgment. As he's He'll be focused on the 2017 law. He, he you know... Retirement issues on how to get people to save more for retirement is one of his one of his pet themes, so he will likely focus on that. But the question remains, I mean, how much leeway does Neil have to, you know, pursue his own objectives? There will be pressure from the Speaker's office. There will be pressure from the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the House to do certain things, and Neil will have to do a f- kind of balancing act here. And, you know, the 2020 campaign season began last night, Mm hmm. So, you know, he will have to do some things to keep the base happy as well.
1: Of course, Democrats don't have a majority in the Senate. So any piece of legislation is going to need to earn the votes of at least a few Republicans. Are there any tax priorities they can agree on?
7: The one thing that I can think of is an infrastructure package, uh, possibly paid for with private activity bonds, or maybe an increase in the gasoline tax. And, you know, we know that President Trump wants an infrastructure package, and so do Senate Republicans and Democrats. So there is a kind of a common kind of theme there. Uh, and if if they want to, they can possibly come together on this issue. But the question remains is, do they want to give Trump a victory before the 2020 elections?
2: You also mentioned before that Richard Neal is interested in retirement, and there is a retirement bill that was passed by the House, and there's one pending in the Senate. Is that something we could see in the lame duck? Or do you think um, Congress might address retirement issues in the new year?
7: The lame duck discussion has been ongoing for the last four or six weeks, uh, you know, it's really gained steam. We might see some part of the retirement bill passed in the lame duck, but there are more issues around, you know, multi-employer pension plans, for example, that will be addressed in the next Congress.
2: Finally, as we mentioned in an earlier segment, uh, Nancy Pelosi is saying that Democrats want to make getting uh, President Trump's tax returns one of their first priorities. And this is something that the law allows, the Ways and Means Committee can request those returns from the Treasury Department. So is that something we can expect them to do? And um, can you tell us a little bit about what some of the risks of doing that are?
7: Sure. So Neil has said previously he would like to inspect the tax returns. Like, uh, he's allowed to do that as chairman of Ways and Means. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, who's expected to be speaker, uh, has said similar things. But President Trump tweeted today that two can play at that game. And what uh, he might be hinting at here, uh, besides other things, is the president also, the law allows him to inspect anyone's tax returns.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
7: And remember, the Senate Finance Committee will be run by the Republicans. And uh, the chairman there can also ask for anyone's tax returns. So uh, some people fear that this might start this war of tax returns where, you know, you're just going and asking for tax returns to prove a point. So Democrats, um, including Neil, uh, I think will be very careful as to how they go about this and, you know, what they ask for, because it could easily spiral out of control.
2: Great. Well, lots for us to look forward to on the tax front. Thank you very much for joining us today, Stu.
7: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: That's it for this special episode of Suspending the Rules. Thanks again to Nancy Ognanovich, Shira Stein, Rob Trichinelli, Michaela Ross, and Stu Basu for joining us.
2: And if you found us through one of the other great Bloomberg podcasts, thanks for sticking with us. And we hope you'll subscribe to Suspending the Rules and join us again in the future.
1: Our regularly scheduled episodes come out every week with a look at what's going on in Congress. Lawmakers have a lot to wrap up in the post-election lame duck session, and we're going to have coverage on the podcast from BGov reporters and analysts.
0: Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Schenk. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nesita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.